Help Jews in Poverty at HelpJewsNow.org. Your $25 gift today will help provide a life-saving food box to Jews in need. Be a blessing right now. Visit HelpJewsNow.org. That's HelpJewsNow.org. Dispensing cannabis business knowledge beyond a million square feet of cultivation space, CannabisRadio.com proudly presents Blunt Business, harvested by Strainwise Consulting. Together, we will navigate the challenges and opportunities of one of the most profitable industries on earth. Join us each episode to hear our weekly roundtables and interviews with industry professionals. Now, let's delve into some blunt business with your host, Sean Eubanks. Welcome to Blunt Business. I'm your host, Sean Eubanks, Vice President of Strainwise Consulting. And this week, we're talking about the ongoing transition into full adult cannabis legalization in California with the principals from Cirrus Strategies, who are Elizabeth Ashford Davis and Ruben Honig. Prior to joining Cirrus Strategies, Elizabeth served as Attorney General Kamala Harris's Chief of Staff from 2013 to 2015, Governor Jerry Brown's Chief Deputy Press Secretary from 2011 to 2013, and Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's Chief Deputy for Cabinet and Communications from 2006 to 2008. She also worked in the private sector as a senior advisor to Fortune 500 and FTSE 100 businesses in the United States and London. Elizabeth also sits on the executive board of the Los Angeles Cannabis Task Force and was recently appointed to the California Highway Patrol's Impaired Driving Task Force. Ruben Honig is a small business owner and executive director of the Los Angeles Cannabis Task Force, where he advocates to ensure the city of Los Angeles creates a fair and equitable cannabis licensing system. A founder and principal at Sears Strategies, Ruben specializes in local licensing and governmental affairs throughout the state of California and was a driving force behind the creation and passage of Measure M which is a taxation-effective uh, strategy and regulatory and licensing framework for the city uh, and Los Angeles County. Ruben also previously operated a successful national copyright business and spent three years in sports and brand management. Elizabeth and Ruben, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Yes, yes. So tell us individually how you chose to accept the challenge to enter the cannabis space after accomplishing so much. Elizabeth, please please go first. Oh, well, thanks so much. Um, you know, for someone with my background, you know, uh, very broadly, all of my work has really been about public policy and enforcement at some level. Even even when I was in the private sector, I was advising, you know, major companies about, you know, how to how to uh, behave and communicate legally. And so cannabis, um, you know, sitting in two governor's offices and the attorney general's office, you know, it's, it's something that's been on the radar for public policy makers in California for a long time. It's something that I think everybody in government is interested and excited about, you know, trying to figure out how it can work. And once the voters gave the green light on Prop 64, you know, I jumped in because I think that, you know, they're fantastic, fantastic operators out there, but they've really had to, you know, work outside of, of what conventional businesses have in place, which is regulation. And, um, you know, they're great at growing, manufacturing, distributing, extracting, uh, but, you know, folks do need support in talking to government, and that's, that's what I do best. So that's really my my background and and how it applies. And you know, I met Ruben um, a couple of years ago. Uh, he was looking for some support for the Los Angeles Cannabis Task Force, which he helped found. And uh, I signed up for that for the task. Excellent. And Ruben, your side? I actually I'm I. I moved to California a little over three years ago. I, I actually lived as a medical cannabis patient after suffering from Crohn's disease for 17 years. I, uh, I finally found relief with cannabis and, and moved out to California and specifically to Los Angeles for safe access and was fortunate enough to kind of find my way and have been uh, healthy for well over two years. So that's how I got into the space. Um, I became a, uh, a small cultivator and manufacturer for a period of time, but then I really learned about the laws and, and the rules, and, and I saw the difficulties of creating a legitimate business and the illegality of it, and I was more interested in being an advocate for the industry and pushing forward the conversation of, of treating people like normal businesses, of supporting small businesses, women-owned businesses, you know, a, a, a diverse 
as possible cannabis industry and, and to really ensure that the process is as responsible and inclusive as possible. So that's what I've been doing, you know, with that Los Angeles Cannabis Task Force, as well as with my private, our private practice, Serious Strategies, for the, the past couple of years. Well, congratulations on that, Ruben. I know uh, you are, uh, I saw that you are a medical cannabis patient and you're sharing us with that, that your experience there is just invaluable because you understand what the actual patient's going through as well. Yeah, it's extremely important and thank you. Yeah. And Elizabeth, back to you. So I I wanted to quickly follow up on your work with Senator Harris. Uh, From your experience working with her, do you think that she would make a viable presidential candidate? Absolutely. You know, Kamala is uh, an extraordinary woman, incredibly gifted as a leader, and I think really the face and gender of what uh, leadership in this country is going to look like. And so uh, very excited about about that as a possibility. On the other hand, you know, there's, as we see right now, Congress is so powerful and uh, really having her in in the Senate is is really important, I think, for the, 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 the kind of policies that I think the cannabis industry is is going to need uh, supporters and advocates for. So I think whatever job she's doing in Washington, it's good for California. Yeah. And would you say overall, I mean, she's supportive of the industry. Is there anything uh, that you would want to give a shout out to her as far as credibility and and credit for her time when she was working uh, there at the local level? Well, you know, I would say this, you know, she is always going to be facing the fact that as a woman of color, you know, any stand she takes is immediately up for 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 a, a lot of critique. And we're living in a time where, you know, all of our dialogue around it is really fraught. So when she was attorney general, uh, you know, she did not come out proactively in favor of legalizing uh, cannabis. But, you know, since she has been in the Senate, you know, she has, you know, with uh, Senator Booker, she's backed legislation that to change things at the federal level. So, I mean, she's definitely a friend to this industry. I think that, um, you know, allies come in all different flavors. You have, you know, some folks like Rohrbacher who are, you know, just out in front on these issues and really pushing and advocating. Uh, you know, John Hickenlooper is governor of, you know, uh, Colorado. And, and, you know, you have folks who are right out in front leading. And then you have also folks that are, you know, pulling things through the middle and the back and pushing them forward. And I think that the senators, uh, you know, she's a, she's a true liberal and, and this industry has a friend in her. Excellent. Thank you for that insight there. So as of January 1st of this year, guys, California has a totally new system for regulating commercial cannabis under which everyone will need both a state and a local license in order to engage in any commercial cannabis activity, including medical and recreational cannabis. So how much has this affected what you guys are doing at Cirrus Strategies? I mean, it, it has really affected it. But if you look at the landscape of what's going on, you know, the latest stories that you hear is that on the cultivation side, 99% of growers have not been permitted yet. I don't know what the numbers are on a state level um, in terms of what localities and, and counties have have issued regulations. I know that as we got closer to January 1st, it was about 30% and most of those municipalities and counties were up north. Uh, now in the South, California is so big and the market is so big that you know with 482 cities and 58 counties, you can only imagine the, uh, the amount of work that goes into this. So. It's a, it's a very interesting landscape. There are a lot of operators that are, are vying for spaces and trying to uh, figure out where they want to land, you know, in the city of Los Angeles or, or be it around here since we are in Southern California. But it, it's a very different time. And, you know, on the recreational side, uh, I keep saying patience, but uh, consumers are, are starting to get used to the taxation, right? So it's, it's a totally different all game out there when, you know, when you, you know, I saw a, uh, a receipt that had, you know, 35% tax on it. If you're buying an ounce, there's a $120 tax taxation rate on that. So that ultimately, you know, fuels the, the gray or illicit market. So there, there's time, it's going to take time. It's, it takes a lot of balance. It's going to take a lot of patience on the operational side and the consumer side that I think there's a lot of confusion out there, but you know, we're going to get there on a state and a local level. Yeah, I, I absolutely, yeah, I, I know you guys. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, I, I guess the only thing I would add is that, you know, uh, for a long time, you know, this, this industry has had to go to regulators sort of hat in hand, 
you know, to avoid prosecution or to navigate these sort of quasi-legal statuses that, you know, governments have allowed the medical industry to, to operate under. And now government really has an obligation to regulate and license and move this forward quickly because we had a statewide proposition on it, which creates a change in the California Constitution and which you know, grants a right to uh, California consumers. And so it's really, it's, it's not an option. It's an obligation. I think it's super important for folks in the industry to start regarding themselves and their interactions with regulators more through that framework. Uh, and I think we're already starting to see that in California with some of the critique that's coming out about the Bureau of Cannabis Regulation uh, and, you know, some of their enforcement activities, because I think the feeling very much is, look, if you want to regulate, and you want to charge a lot of money to do that and you want us to get a local license first, then maybe six weeks into, you know, this new era, you know, we shouldn't be facing, you know, letters telling us to close down. I get why the Bureau feels that that's their role at this point. But, you know, again, it's an industry that wants to go legal. It wants to be legitimate. It wants to comply. And the California voters have told us, you know, we want it too. So I think that's a posture change on the industry's part is super important right now. Let's Absolutely. just say we are, are in a, we are in a transitional period right now. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, what would you say quickly? We got to go to break here in just a second, but you know, uh, it's probably a, a broader point, but you know, it seems like it would make sense to go ahead and just have a, a low barrier of entry in the, in the, in the beginning to get everybody into the system and then raise taxes, frankly, along the way. A perfect example of that is, some estimates unofficial say there are 15,000 growers in the northern part of the uh, northern part of the state and less than 1% are actively uh, filing licenses. Yeah, I think that that's that's absolutely true what you what is what's what's been created in some ways is a disincentive to try to go uh, legit. Um, you know, and, and what I've always said when I speak with regulators, you know, and I was a regulator for a long time, so, you know, I, I understand their perspective as well, but, you know, what I always say is, like, you know, you can either create a situation where you're actually going to have, like, a fully functioning market, or you can create a situation where, you know, very well-capitalized uh, individuals get into the game and the rest of it just stays illicit. And again, this is, it's not as if this market isn't used to operating illicitly. It, nobody has to learn how to do that. So, you know, regulators, I think, really are smarter when they come to it, like, how do we bring as much of this in as possible? So I, I agree. Um, that said, you know, I don't also want to, you know, undermine the complexity of putting together cannabis regulations for the state the size and population of California. It's daunting and you know the state met its deadlines and got it done by January 1st and I think for that you know I tip my hat. So it's a mixed bag. Yeah well while attempting to regulate a, a largely unregulated industry that has been in existence for 21 years. At least. At least. I mean we do need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be rejoined by Elizabeth Ashford Davis and Ruben Honig of Cirrus Strategies. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. Introducing 420 Cloud, ignited by MSIG, one of the fastest growing social apps around. The only app you'll need for all things cannabis. Find the latest cannabis news, videos, and stories, ranging from business and tech to sports and medicine. Start your career in cannabis by seeking, identifying, and applying for jobs through our expansive listings. For businesses, 420cloud.com features a full-scale cross-channel network, monetizing high traffic for big data conversion and analytics. Download 420 Cloud now from the iTunes Store or Google Play. MSIG.com is a publicly listed company on the OTC, symbol MCIG. Cannabis concentrates have been around for hundreds of centuries. In 19th century America, extracts mixed with other herbs were sold as a miracle cure. Now, Apex Supercritical has elevated the science of extraction into the 21st century. Apex Supercritical is the leader in CO2 extraction, which is the cleanest, safest, and purest way to extract plant oils. ROI in as little as three weeks. Our cost-effective systems are fully automated with an industry-leading three-year warranty. And if we don't have your system in stock, we can build one in as little as four weeks. Bringing CO2 extraction to the masses. Learn more at apeksupercritical.com. Four-week build excludes high production systems. 
Introducing Blue Moon CBD, straight from the bluegrass of Kentucky. With our special nano emulsion process, you'll not only get the best CBD available, you'll get more of it. Not all CBD is the same. It's your body. It's your choice. Get relief from inflammation, anxiety, and stress. Go to www.bluemoonhemp.com and use code HEMP420 for a 20% discount on your order. Balance your body. Balance your life. Make it Blue Moon CBD. Dispensing cannabis business knowledge beyond a million square feet of cultivation space, Sean Eubanks hosts Blunt Business, harvested by Strainwise Consulting, Wednesdays on demand, only on CannabisRadio.com. I hope you didn't forget about us, because we're back with Blunt Business on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back to Blunt Business. I'm your host, Sean Eubanks, Vice President of Strainwise Consulting, and we have been talking to Elizabeth Ashford Davis and Ruben Honig of Cirrus Strategies. Welcome back, guys. Thanks. So in that first segment, we talked a lot about the the state in general, and you guys are both sitting members of uh, the City of Los Angeles Task Force. Uh, what has been the experience so far, and have there been any significant obstacles that the cities required licensees to abide by? Actually, we sat on on you know a working group and, and other groups that were helping to to shape the regulations of the city of LA. Actually, the LA Cannabis Task Force is an organization that represents the industry, mostly on the non-retail side. So we represent about 400 non-retail businesses in the city of Los Angeles in in efforts to not only protect them, but to move the conversation forward with, with City Hall in the city of Los Angeles. So more on the cultivation, manufacturing, distribution, and uh, delivery service side. So that is, that, that is you know, what, what we have done, but we've also you know, been working with the city on these regulations for the better part of two years. That's right. And I think that, you know, like all cities, uh, you know, L.A. has the, the right uh, to to regulate this industry as it sees fit. That was kind of something very unusual about uh, the way that the state decided to roll out this program. So, you know, um, L.A. is unique, though, in, the, in how large it is, you know, how many people it ends up regulating, how many businesses it ends up regulating just based on sheer size. So, you know, the, 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 the cannabis market in Los Angeles is larger than the market in Colorado. Uh, you, don't, you don't have a, an apples-to-apples apples comparison. It was a huge task. Um, in terms of, you know, things that have been bumps in the road, I mean, you know, the process, it's like they always say, you know, don't watch sausage or regulations being made. And, you know, it's, it's, it's complex. It took a lot of people getting in that mix uh, and hashing it out. But, you know, bottom line is we're pleased that they, they issued regulations and we're really pleased that they're accepting and processing applications. We would like them to do that faster. Okay. In addition to speed, are, is there anything that's standing out that you know is absolutely interfering with the way businesses can do business from seed to sale? Uh, I think it, 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 again, comes to this, this transitional period that we're speaking about. It, it, it's, a very complicated, uh, it's a very complicated conversation that, 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 that you know, localities have, have never had before. And imagine in the city of Los Angeles, I mean, number one, what I like to say is in the city of L.A., you know, for all intents and purposes, the market is bigger than Colorado and Washington combined, just in the, oh. just in the city of Los Angeles of three to four million, closer to, to four million. Uh, the, the market is booming in the shadows. So it's not like they're creating something new, right? They are um, they're trying to regulate something that has been, exist- existed, has been in existence for such a long time and in such a big way. And especially when you have a city that is so big with you know, 15 council districts that I like to call cities of their own with, with council members that you know, for all intents and purposes might as well be mayors because they, are, you know, they all have different priorities and they're, they're the sizes of different cities around the city of Los Angeles. It, again, it, it becomes very complicated. So the, you know, I, I understand why it's taking this time. And again, you know, it, it's very difficult to see different operators and different people that want to get involved and do get involved kind of wait on the sidelines and deal with it. Yeah, I think it's, and the, the main issue really is, is speed. Things have to move along quickly because the longer L.A. has a big portion of its operators uh, uh, unregulated and the longer that takes, the more it really impacts the, the, the fabric of the statewide market. Um, it's like suggesting that, you know, um, if every city except Los Angeles, you know, submitted their state taxes, we would know what the state budget looked like. We wouldn't because L.A. is such a big player. So, you know, that's that I think is, is really the, the main issue is is speed. 
Well, yeah, and and to combine with that, I mean, you you I will say this: we have a lot of clients in California, and the unique challenge you guys have, as you just alluded to, Ruben, is that there's already a thriving market, and the challenge is getting people to feel that sense of urgency, honor the July deadline, and and understand, and also play within the rules of the temporary regulations that are that are governing them until. Uh, they get their permanent licenses. So there's a lot culturally, I think, in the state of California that we never had to deal with in Colorado as far as compliance. Everyone was scared to death here, and they, they whatever the, the med said, the Marijuana Enforcement Division said, it was done. Uh, whereas in California, it's, it's a different approach. So I, I definitely honor the task you guys have at hand. And I wish we could spend uh, a couple more hours talking about this. I'm going to kind of go on to the next, next subject, though. There has been in the news the issue where the cannabis industry is essentially in a battle with corporate agricultural businesses. Um, so are, are farmers challenging the state grow regulation also? Uh, the, what, the issue is that in, in the initial drafts, of uh, Prop 64, there was a, a one-acre cap. Uh, I think it was the one-acre cap put on on cultivations, but it was changed in the final regulations that there could be unlimited grow sizes. So there was a cap for five years. I, I think it's a f- type five license where there are you can have unlimited unlimited grow space. And the concern from the industry has been that you know they the, the point of it was to protect smaller farmers, right? To pr- protect smaller sure. businesses, and they feel that they're they're losing their competitive. Their, their ability is not just being competitive, they're, they're losing their businesses. So that's, it's, it's emotional, it's, it's historic, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot to it, and there is a lawsuit up in Sacramento challenging this. Yeah. California Growers Association, you know, is pushing back on this change, which, you know, was uh, inserted really, at the, as far as we can tell, at the last minute um, by the Department of Food and Ag. And, you know, it is. It's going to create a real challenge for smaller, bespoke uh, growers, um, because they're going to be in competition with larger farms and, and, and entities that can participate at a much, much bigger scale. Um, so, you know, so that is a tension. I think that, you know, until it's reclassified at the federal level um, and, you know, is no longer a Schedule One narcotic, um, I don't know that the, you know, super big agro, the Monsantos and the, you know, entities like that are going to be able to be very visible in the space, but I, I don't think I would ever underestimate the work that they do behind the scenes. And um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I mean, I sat in government for a long time and, and major corporate interests, even when they're not officially in the game, can still help, uh, you know, shape what regulations look like. And, you know, I, I don't know, we don't know what happened, uh, but it, it's definitely not a positive for smaller farmers. Well, and from a public task force perspective or even a private consultancy perspective, what have you guys been able to do to help these farmers find solutions? Wow. Well, we've done, we've done a lot of, of different things. It really depends on which city we're working in. I mean, in terms of, you know, L.A., Ruben, I'll, I'll let Ruben speak to that, but I'll just speak briefly to some of the work we did up in Santa Barbara. Um, you know, the, the county of Santa Barbara is one of the most uh, agriculturally rich parts of the state. It's just extraordinary weather. Wonderful things have been grown up there, flowers, artichokes, the whole bit for, for forever. And, and obviously there's a huge uh, cannabis grow industry there as well. And, you know, we went in with a team to um, help organize uh, growers and help organize folks uh, from the industry there to advocate on their behalf. Uh, to the, the county super board of supervisors, and we helped introduce uh, county regulations there. Um, you know, because of the pace of the regulatory changes is glacial. You know, Santa Barbara's farmers and cultivators and et cetera are still working on it. But you know, that's the kind of work that we do. We we do work with individual clients to help them find homes and help them find their space in this industry in California. Um, but we also help organize. Um, the industry in areas where that hasn't happened uh, so that they can self-advocate uh, successfully. And I'll let Ruben talk a little bit about L.A. Yeah, I mean, in the city of Los Angeles, it's, it's a much, it's fascinating. It's a much different issue in the city of Los Angeles versus the issue that, you know, that's going on up, up north. You know, what's interesting is that I feel like organizations have been and need to more be on the same page and, and rely on each other. It's, you know, this was a real issue that, that the California Growers Association and Hezekiah Allen took took the lead on, you know it's it's something that we believe in and that and that we're supportive of. You know we we are here with with 
support as we can. And at the same in, in the city of Los Angeles, it's, you know, there's not much agricultural land. So you're looking at more indoor grows. So it's, it's just, it's, it's really comparing. It's, it's just, it's complicated because, I mean, some people say that California could be separated into two states. I think it could be separated into three states. You have the top third, the middle, you know, the Central Valley and Santa Barbara County, and then you go towards the south. You know, we, every, the funny thing is, and I know this is such a pressing issue with them changing the caps on, on cultivation, but every jurisdiction and every advocate organization is having their own sets of issues that they're dealing with at all times. So it's, it's, it's really about the industry coming together. Uh, I think that's the most important thing that we need to take from this. And, and we need to move it forward, be it in Sacramento, in Los Angeles. Or- Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Throughout the state. Yeah, well, thank you both for the advocacy work you're doing and you're serving the market. And I'm just, I think the, the, the task force is lucky to have you guys in general. Uh, shifting gears here. So the state treasurer and attorney general are now considering whether the state should create its own publicly owned bank to serve the state's uh, now legal industry. Guys, this is a big, big buzz in the industry right now. What can you tell me about this? And could this actually be a reality? Well, yes. I mean, it could be a reality in the sense that the state of California has the kind of uh, treasury and budget that, you know, is larger than most countries on earth, right? So it's the mm-hmm. fifth largest economy in the world right now. I don't think even at the height of the economic crisis, we dropped much lower than, you know, the ninth. So it's, it's massive. And yes, there could certainly be a state chartered bank. Uh, but I think the challenge there is that it would require uh, taxpayer money, obviously, to back it, right? I mean, that's the definition of, of a state bank is that it's taxpayer money that is essentially the collateral behind the bank. And I'm, I'm just not sure if Californians, even with their support for Prop 64, uh, you know, want to see tax money that goes into the banking uh, for cannabis. So I think that's really the challenge. Um, and of course, you know, a, a state bank, a state chartered bank, you know, wouldn't have the benefits of uh, the federal insurance and FDIC. Um, so, it, it, you know, it would really create a whole other sort of aspect of government that we don't currently have. But yes, I mean, that said, I think that it, it could be done. And I think it's really awesome, you know, that Javier Becerra and uh, John Chung, our treasurer and, and our uh, attorney general, um, you know, have tried to take this on and are taking this on. I mean, that's what leaders are supposed to do is, you know, address uh, issues that they see in a way that is within the realm of, of what they, they have power over. And, and obviously between the attorney general and the treasurer, that's something that they could push forward. Um, obviously, it would have to be approved by the legislature and the governor. And I mean, it, it's a heavy lift. I see it being something that's probably taken up with our next governor, whoever that happens to be. This is Governor Brown's last year in office. He has done an extraordinary job, I think, of, of just pushing through, you know, the, the, the medical bills that he signed in 2016, you know, laying the frame, the foundation for Prop 64. Um, but I don't know that he's, he's necessarily going to take the time and energy it will take to get uh, the approval for a bank. And it seems appropriate, you know, that the next governor would take this up. I mean, you have, you have, you know, Gavin Newsom, who is, um, you know, obviously a long time, super visible and vocal supporter of, of cannabis regulation and legality and, and John Chung, Antonio Villaraigosa, Diane Easton. I, I don't think that any of those, any of them would, would shy away from that, but I, I don't see it happening uh, this year. And I, I, I defer to Elizabeth on this. However, with the LA Cannabis Task Force, Nicole Newbert, who is an attorney in the space out of San Francisco with Clark Newbert, uh, the partner of Ariel Clark, who founded our organization. And, you know, I helped her get it off the ground. And she sat on Treasurer Chung's uh, banking working group. I think she was the only, pri- I might be wrong, she might, was the only private counsel that was invited to participate. And Elizabeth did a lot of work around that too. So I, I defer to 
Yeah, Nicole, Nicole and the team that, that helped uh, the treasurer develop that report is really a fantastic group from cities, counties, uh, Nicole from private practice, the major, you know, California Cannabis Industry Association, Cal Growers, a lot of, of good brain power went into that. But, you know, their takeaway was, look, in the short term, this is really going to be about government helping businesses manage cash because they don't have banks. The longer term, we need to, you know, figure out what a banking solution might be for the state, but really the only real change in banking is going to come if, you know, things are rescheduled federally. So, you know, because keep in mind, it's not as if the onus now is just on business owners to manage a cash economy. Now any entity that collects tax revenue has to be prepared to take in large amounts of cash and handle it and get it moved and get it deposited. Uh, and, and that is dangerous. It's time consuming. So I think, you know, for the first time, government is really understanding, gosh, it's hard to deal with a lot of cash. So, you know, maybe maybe just the, the stress they face trying to, to deposit taxes will, will push them to find a solution sooner rather than later. Absolutely. And, you know, we're pulling for you. We'll keep watching on the show here. I know there's a victory with uh, Fourth Corner Credit Union uh, versus the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Uh, They've been granted a charter. It is for ancillary businesses are not touching the plant. Nonetheless, it is progress. And I hope we see something similar uh, or all out um, a banking charter granted in California. I know people would be supportive of it in the industry in general. I understand there's a risk for lack of federal insurance, but uh, fingers crossed that, that that all works out. Guys, we do need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're rejoined by Elizabeth Ashford Davis and Ruben Honig. Don't go away. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested. Welcome to the Cannabis Radio Network, founded by respected rainmakers who have been producing award-winning podcasts for over a decade. Industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e-commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network, CannabisRadio.com. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put the big celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is Hemping, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint Business and cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot proved by the man who run high times. Oh yeah, get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Strainwise Consulting is the most sought-after consulting company for cannabis business applications and management contracts. We consulted on the first recreational license in the world and have had an over 95% success rate on applications submitted. The industry is growing at such an exponential rate that building a powerful and lasting cannabis business is a number one priority. Here's Strainwise's Sean Eubanks. In our first five years, we branded and supported nine medical and recreational marijuana dispensaries and a Approximately 160,000 square feet of sophisticated and efficient product cultivation. Strainwise Consulting has the experience and expertise to guide you through the process. Look at how people are transforming cannabis from the shadows of the black market into a cash crop that draws in cannabis from Hollywood to Wall Street. Lewis Goldberg and Ann Donahue prove the green rush is real. Wednesdays on demand only on CannabisRadio.com. I hope you didn't forget about us because we're back with Blunt Business on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back to Blunt Business. I'm your host, Sean Eubanks, Vice President of Strainwise Consulting, and we have been talking to Elizabeth Ashford Davis and Ruben Honig. Welcome back, guys. There have been reports from distributors about the lack of licensees in California bottlenecks um, that have already slowed down the supply chain from fields to storefront to kind of keep up with the new demand. Do you guys deal with any clients applying for licenses, and are they dealing with a lot of red tape holding them up from getting started? Absolutely. Again, this comes back to timing, right? 
cities mm-hmm. are, I wouldn't say dragging their feet, but they're doing what they can do to, to roll out the, these programs, right? And we are in this kind of limited industry that's growing this transitional period where, you know, there aren't as many shops as are going to be online in, what, in a year or two. There are not as many, of, as we said, not, not many of the cultivators are already, you know, have their, um, have their licenses or their, their permit, their local permits and their state licenses, as well as, uh, you know, in Southern California, the, it's, it's, in my opinion, I think it's lagging a little bit and it, it's coming online a little slower than Northern California. So it's not necessarily from the distribution standpoint, but there, there is, you know, a lot of stores from what I've heard really loaded up on products before January 1st and they're, they're pushing through that inventory. And once they get through that inventory, it's going to be an interesting time because there's going to be a bit of a shortage. You know, a lot of the brands are still trying to find their homes. A lot of brands are dependent upon the city of Los Angeles for their revenue and for their success. It's just, it's multifaceted. It's not just from a distribution standpoint. Yeah. I think at every part of the supply chain, you're seeing bottlenecks, you're seeing bumps. Um, That's, you know, for better or for worse, this is what it looks like to bring a whole market online. Um, so it's until, you know, we, we see that actually free and clear, until we see the free flow of goods and, and the free flow of commerce, we're not really going to know the value of things. We're not going to know which brands are really actually popular. We, you know, we're not going to know what's working for a while. Uh, I think, you know, like you're seeing in Colorado, you know, this is a five to seven year takeoff. Um, it, we're not going to know today and we're probably not going to know in a year, but we will in time. And that's the way the system was designed. Okay, guys. And I know uh, as part of the task force, a big part of what you're doing is diversity and inclusion. If it's okay, I'd love to shift gears and talk about social equity for a second and these programs that are going on across the state. So uh, we'll, we'll focus on Los Angeles, but I want to talk about San Francisco. They have what appears to be on paper an outstanding program where they're saying that any new licenses granted in 2018 on the dispensary side of things are either going to be part of the social equity program or as an incubator. Are you, are you guys familiar with that? We are. Yeah, we are. I mean, to, in, we're also you know, familiar with what's happening in L.A. and places like Sacramento, uh, across the state, Oakland. I think across the state you're seeing you know, cities look very seriously at social equity and how uh, they can create a, a framework where folks who are really disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, and that's mostly black and brown people, um, you know, can, can benefit uh, from this new market. Well, and Elizabeth, on that note, I mean, it's um, the the thing that kind of stuck out at me. I'm I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with with uh, Oakland's uh, social equity program, but the thing that stuck out with me in San Francisco is, is they've got an incubator. And one of the things I've always questioned is how do you take someone and you know the list of of disproportionately um, uh, you know prosecuted. I mean, all all down the all down the line, uh, treated. Um, all, all these things are wonderfully addressed. But one of the things that I think is incredible about San Fran is they're saying, look, incubators, meaning they're bringing in mentors and business owners to partner with those that have been disadvantaged. And I think that's a better model for success um, with agreeing to have, you know, 50 percent of your staff do, you know, and meet certain demographic and then and all those. But it doesn't seem like a perfect marriage between business leaders that will set these guys up for success um, who might be starting their first business and, and might have, you know, all kinds of life challenges that come with serving years and years in prisons. I mean, it goes on and on. Um, but that marriage seems to be uh, the makings of a successful one. Yeah, I think that, you know, folks who have not been incarcerated and have not been, you know, in the criminal justice system really do have a responsibility to, you know, participate in, in, in righting these wrongs. I think the challenge will be uh, if that becomes the sole uh, focus of a regulatory program um, because there's just a market demand that exceeds uh, the the liftoff time. You know, if, if you're taking, uh, if somebody's coming into this industry with no experience or only a background of incarceration or years of incarceration, they're just, they're facing a lot of challenges. And we know this inside and out of the cannabis industry, a lot of challenges with getting themselves set up. I don't think that we should put the burden on that person to also be responsible for fully supplying, uh, you know, a multi-billion dollar market. It's a combination. And it has to be a thoughtful combination. The nice thing about incubators, and 
we would love to see one in Los Angeles. And, you know, we hope that that is something that is going to happen this year and we're going to work on it. Um, you know, but, but we do need that marriage of business experience, uh, plus, you know, folks who really do need that kind of mentoring. And I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Um, and I think that folks who are successful in this business have an obligation to participate, and we fully support it. Ruben, can you shed some light on that? What are you most proud of in Los Angeles on the, on the equity side of things, and what would you like to see change? I think the most important thing about the social equity program is, is to remember that it's, it's not an opportunity for people to game the system. I think that, I think that it's important that that the program is is rolled out with integrity. It, it's rolled out in the in the spirit of social equity, um, and and that it really develop not only provides licensing and business opportunities for people, you know, bl- mostly black and brown people, but people that have been affected the most by the war on drugs, and to make sure that they're set up to succeed. That it's not just you know it's not just here have a business and go go at it but you know as you said mentorship or you know programs are in place to really be supportive on the, on the educational side uh, to really be supportive on the business side and, and to really move this conversation forward. You do have also, you know, some of the most uh, the most successful f- people in L.A., um, you know, uh, are, have also, you know, are folks who have been really disproportionately impacted by the, the war on drugs. And I think that, you know, uh, hopefully with, uh, you know, their participation and guidance, you know, we see really positive outcomes. I mean, everybody has to be in on this. Would Ruben, would it take maybe a nonprofit organization in the city of Los Angeles to go ahead and form something that's incubator like that's full of mentors? And you've seen this happen in the past where you put out a public service announcement and say, we're looking for 50 mentors and 600 show up. I mean, there are people who want to help of all races and genders and backgrounds. Um, What would be a solution to um, getting these people? Because it makes me cringe. When I think of taking somebody, I mean, first of all, you have these onerous um, tax requirements, so it's not even like a normal business. It would be one thing if you took somebody who was socially disadvantaged from the criminal justice system or other and said, look, here's a business, and, and they might have a fair chance. I just think things are too tight, especially on the dispensary side of things with uh, the tax laws and everything that's in, that are in place that are that are punitive. I think it's very, very difficult for someone to just come right out of prison and survive. What would be a temporary stopgap or something that can ensure success for these Los Angeles dispensary owners? For the Los Angeles dispensary owners or for the social equity applicants? Uh, well, sorry, for the social equity acu- uh, applicants, assuming they're going to eventually be dispensary owners. Understood. You know, we have great examples up north, like the Hood Incubator. Um, you know, we need to follow this model in Los Angeles. I, I completely agree with you. I know that there are some things on the table and, and different organizations and private private benefactors are, are, are working on that. But again, I wanted to, to really drill in that without the education, without, without the, uh, you know, you call it incubation, but I, I think that there needs to be programs, right, that that ensure that businesses, especially in the social equity program, not only you know get their priority in licensing, but are successful. I think that it's really, it's important, and you know there are so many different kinds of social equity applicants. There are social equity applicants that need to partner up with an existing business. There are ones that can, you know, in the city of LA, there's there are three tiers. You know, there are ones that are more interested in in mentorship and in, in, in gaining some space in a facility, but they're also pure social, not pure social equity applicants, but social equity applicants that, you know, want to go at it on their own, right? And then, and they have, you know, they're securing, uh, they're securing properties, they're, they're looking for investment money. So there, you need to make sure that all aspects of the social equity program are, are taken care of. And, and it's, it is run with as much integrity and, you know, as, as possible. No, well said, Ruben. And we have several clients in, in Los Angeles and the surrounding areas. None of them are included in the social equity program. One of the, my concerns that, that our clients deal with is the real estate gouging, um, the marijuana premiums that we call them uh, with, that's involved with every real estate transaction, whether it's purchase or what's most common is a lease. Um, they often require uh, non-refundable deposits that are, that are really high and inappropriate for the market. Uh, they don't allow contingencies and things like that that we normally write into our uh, letter of intent to to secure the building. Um, is there anything being done on the real estate side of things to help these people out? Because they might be perfectly uh, working their way through the program and then they run into the real estate side of things and it can throw them for a loop. 
I mean, in terms of, of anything regulatory, uh, no. I mean, the, the you know, the housing market, the commercial property market in California is horrible <laughs> to begin with. It's all extremely expensive already. Um, a lot of people are, you know, can't achieve home ownership and, and et cetera. So I think it, it fits into that. I think, um, you know, anytime, um, you know, real estate companies, you know, see that opportunity or landlords see that opportunity, you know, it's really kind of up to the individual about whether or not they're going to take it. There's, there's, it would be very difficult. And I think, um, you know, given how, um, how protective Californians are around, like Proposition 13, for example, which limits property tax uh, changes. I, I just don't see uh, that being possible from a from a policy framework to to kind of cap that. And and you're right, it's a, it's it's the really high rates and not being able to cap them are, are super detrimental. It's probably the biggest barrier after you you deal with just the cost of, of you know submitting your licensing application. That's thousands of dollars on top of that, the real estate, 100%. It's a huge issue. It's an issue that fits into a bigger California issue. And, um, and I, I personally don't know what that solution might look like. Ruben may have some yeah. ideas. It's, it's my opinion that over time, these things are going to, they're going to bounce out. Uh, it, right now we're, we're still in that, in that, I keep saying transitional period, but we're in a period where, where, you know, you have operators and you have operators and it, this kind of pro, you know prohibition. The people say the prohibition ended when Prop 64 passed. You know there are these prohibitionist mentalities and prohibitionist attitudes until this goes gets more mainstream and becomes and you know especially in the city of Los Angeles, if we license broadly and inclusively and not really limit the market, you want to take away the leverage from the property owner to be able to gouge people. So it's uh, again it's going to take time, and but I think that natural market forces are actually going to balance out. It's it's wow. it's a it's a it's an issue that that has limited that's going to have limited. Uh, it's not going to be forever. Is I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I hope that's the case. And and I mean, you know, kind of to to give you know San Francisco another shout out. I mean, part of their incubation uh, program is that they you know to be to be a qualified incubator to be a part of that, and you're effectively a business partner uh, with someone in the social equity program. Uh, one of the requirements there, amazingly, is that you give the social equity applicant rent-free commercial space. So it might be, you know, that might be a, a, a way to uh, to move forward on it. Yeah, I think I think there are definitely things the city could put in place that would put the onus on on operators. I mean, but there's a difference between an operator who's trying to get their business off the ground and a real estate agent. And so again, I think it's going to be hard to actually control the market for real estate. There are things that can be put in place that you know, if you're going to partner with a social equity applicant, you really do need to turn up with you know some awesome resources because that's obviously something that that by the very nature of their definition, they're not going to be able to bring. Uh, necessarily, um, you know, and in terms of San Francisco, super, super applaud their their work there. It's it's really exemplary. Um, but you know, San Francisco has done a terrible job of actually creating a, uh, an environment where middle class and, and lower income people can live. So you know, they they have their work cut out for them. It's a it's a place where you know to be middle class or poor is almost a crime uh, unto itself. And so I think that it's it's incumbent on on them. Uh, to, to really try to get this right um, because there are already so many barriers to entry just to live and be in that city and do business in that city. Uh, I think L.A. has a similar obligation and responsibility. You know, this really was ground zero for a lot of the war on drugs and communities here are, you know, still struggling with, with the outcomes of that. Uh, and, and so, again, I, I think it's just absolutely incumbent that we get behind it, that operators get behind it, um, but that we also, you know, keep in mind there is a full waiting market out there of consumers, uh, tourists, uh, patients who want access to cannabis. So we need to do both. We need to make sure social ap- uh, equity is uh, front of mind and front of action. But we also need to make sure that licensing is coming online quickly and efficiently. Because if we don't, we're going to end up with the illicit market as robust or more robust than it has been. Absolutely. Well said, Elizabeth. And with the time we have left, guys, please tell us a little bit more about how people can get in touch with you and learn more about what you do. Sure. So we're online at cirrusstrategy.com. www.cirrusstrategy, C-E-R-E-S, strategy.com. You can contact us 
there, uh, as well as on the LA Cannabis Task Force, lacannabistaskforce.org. You can go in there, you know, sign up for our, our email list and reach out to us through the contact form as well. So th- those are ways to get in touch with us. Well, Elizabeth and Ruben, I want to thank you so much for your time, Dan. I know you're very, very busy, very, very accomplished individuals. You could have, uh, with with your achievements and your backgrounds, frankly, you could have just gone on to another industry or something. I applaud both of you for stepping in on the public side and both the private sector uh, in serving this industry and doing everything you can to move not only the state of California forward, but the industry in general. I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on your show. We appreciate it. And thank you all for joining us on this edition of Blunt Business. You can download episodes of our program by going to CannabisRadio.com, BluntBusinessRadio.com, or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and now iHeartRadio. If you like what you've heard but you're unsure of how to get in this industry or if you need help with your existing cannabis business, please feel free to send an email to subanks at strainwise.com. Thanks again for tuning in and have an outstanding rest of your week. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. What's with Mountain Dew? Mountain Dew is like a zipline of incredible flavor directly into your brain. Mountain Dew is like getting punched in the mouth with pure neon refreshment that creates a neural explosion sending flavor shards of electric brain pulses into your very core of being. Okay, maybe that's a little over the top, but you get the idea. The fact is, the mind-bending challenge of describing the taste of Mountain Dew is way harder than just experiencing it. That, of course, is easy. Just grab a nice cold dew, crack it open, and toss them back. Mountain Dew. Do the dew. Help Jews in poverty at helpjewsnow.org. Your $25 gift today will help provide a life-saving food box to Jews in need. Be a blessing right now. Visit helpjewsnow.org. That's helpjewsnow.org. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.